Very early in life, I took up the idea that I wanted to learn to read and write. I was convinced that there would be something for me to do in the future that I could not accomplish by remaining in ignorance. I had heard so much about freedom and of the colored people running off and going to Canada that my mind was busy with this subject even in my young days. I sought the aid of the white boys who did all they could in teaching me. They did not know that it was dangerous for a slave to read and write. Reverend Elijah P. Mars, 1885. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today, I'm continuing a series on enslaved Americans' pursuit of literacy. It's hard to know how many African Americans learned to read before the abolition of slavery. An enslaved person risked grave consequences by revealing that he or she had the ability to read and write. Church records provide some evidence that the enslaved were educated. Religion was often the context in which African Americans, enslaved and free, learned to read and write. Another way we know is from runaway notices. The Virginia Gazette, for example, published 1,000 notices between 1736 and 1776. In 55 of them, the notice indicated that the enslaved person had some education. And we know from the people themselves. They wrote their own stories of their own lives, dictated their stories to be written for them, and narrated their stories as part of oral history projects. Today's episode focuses on what African Americans had to overcome in order to learn to read and write. I'll discuss what their narratives reveal about how they learned to read on their own and with the help of other enslaved people. I'm also talking about what motivated white people to sometimes help blacks learn to read. As usual, I've inserted a tone where the N-word was used. While claiming that the intellectual inferiority of Africans justified their enslavement, white society clearly feared the potential power of an enslaved population that was literate. Francis Frederick was born in Fauquier County, Virginia, and wrote the following in his 1863 memoir. My mistress took a fancy to me and began to teach me some English words and phrases, for I only knew how to say dis and dat, dem and dare, and a few such monosyllables. It is a saying among the masters, the bigger fool, the better. Hence all knowledge, except what pertains to work, is systematically kept from the field slaves. Anti-literacy laws were very clear in their purpose, which is to prevent the free movement and free thought of the enslaved population, and to keep them from cooperating with each other to overthrow the system of bondage. South Carolina passed the nation's first anti-literacy statute in 1740, and it reads, And whereas the having of slaves taught to write, or suffering them to be employed in writing, may be attended with great inconveniences, be it therefore enacted by the authority aforesaid, that all and every person and persons whatsoever, who shall hereinafter teach or cause any slave or slaves to be taught to write, or shall use or employ any slave as a scribe in any manner of writing whatsoever, 
hereafter taught to write, Every such person and persons shall, for every such offense, forfeit the sum of one hundred pounds current money. Eight months before the passage of this legislation, on Sunday, September ninth, 1739, twenty enslaved South Carolinians began what came to be known as the Stano Rebellion, or Cato's Conspiracy. They met at Stano's Bridge, about twenty miles southwest of Charleston. At Hutchison's store, the band of enslaved people seized firearms and ammunition and killed two storekeepers. Then, led by a man named Jemmy, they marched down the road, beating drums and shouting, Liberty. More enslaved people joined them as they proceeded southward. They killed Mr. Godfrey, his son and daughter, and burned their home. They continued on to Wallace's tavern, but spared the innkeeper because he was reportedly kind to his slaves. The men enslaved by Thomas Rose would later be rewarded for successfully hiding him, but that night they were forced to join the rebellion. It's possible that the group's ultimate destination was St. Augustine, Florida. Since 1693, Spain's official policy was to free runaways in exchange for military service and conversion to Catholicism. In 1738, the year before the rebellion, 23 enslaved people successfully escaped from South Carolina to Florida. There is also speculation that the rebellion was timed to occur before the Security Act went into effect on September 29th. The new law required that all white men carried firearms to church on Sundays, a time when whites were normally unarmed. Whatever the spark for this particular uprising, it would be the largest in the British mainland colonies before the American Revolution. Lieutenant Governor William Bull described the event as follows in a report to the King's Royal Council. On the ninth day of September, last at night, a great number of Negroes arose in rebellion, broke open a store where they got arms, killed 21 white persons, and were marching the next morning in a daring manner out of the province killing all they met and burning several houses as they passed along the road. I was returning from Granville County with four gentlemen and met these rebels at eleven o'clock in the forenoon and fortunately discerned the approaching danger time enough to avoid it and to give notice to the militia who, on the occasion, behaved with so much expedition and bravery as by four o'clock the same day to come up with them and killed and took so many has put a stop to any further mischief at that time. Forty-four of them have been killed and executed. Some few yet remain concealed in the woods, expecting the same fate, seem desperate. Approximately thirty enslaved people escaped that night, but most were captured within the next month. One would remain a fugitive for three years. And the following May, the Act for the Better Ordering and Governing Negroes and Other Slaves from which I read an excerpt a moment ago, was passed. That law also made it illegal for any slave to buy, sell, traffic, deal, or barter for any goods or commodities, except as before accepted, nor shall any slave be permitted to keep any boat, periauger, or canoe, or to raise and breed for the use and benefit of such slave, any horses, mares, neat cattle, sheep, or hogs, under pain of forfeiting all the goods and commodities. 
Georgia adopted South Carolina's slave code in 1755. A 1770 revision added a 20-pound fine for teaching slaves to write or to read writing. This may not then have included printed writing, for example, the Bible, but handwriting. An 1819 Virginia law made it illegal for enslaved or free blacks to meet anywhere for the purpose of teaching, reading, or writing. It states that all meetings or assemblages of slaves or free Negroes or mulattoes mixing and associating with such slaves at any meeting house or houses, etc., in the night or at any school or schools for teaching them reading or writing, either in the day or night, under whatever pretext, shall be deemed and considered an unlawful assembly. The punishment was up to 20 lashes. North Carolina's 1830 statute reads, Whereas the teaching of slaves to read and write has a tendency to excite dissatisfaction in their minds and to produce insurrection and rebellion, to the manifest injury of the citizens of the state, any free person who shall hereafter teach or attempt to teach any slave within this state to read or write, the use of figures accepted, or shall give or sell to such slaves any books or pamphlets, shall be liable to indictment in any court of record in this state. Teaching math was notably excluded, as it was needed for trades such as carpentry but writing was forbidden. By 1845, 12 states had anti-literacy statutes or restrictions on educating enslaved and free blacks. Even in slave states that did not have anti-literacy laws, people in bondage were prevented from reading. In Kentucky, for example, there were no such laws, but Henry Bibb had been led to believe that there were. He writes, In 1833, I had some very serious religious impressions, and there was quite a number of slaves in that neighborhood who felt very desirous to be taught to read the Bible. There was a Miss Davis, a poor white girl, who offered to teach a Sabbath school for the slaves, notwithstanding public opinion, and the law was opposed to it. Books were furnished, and she commenced the school, but the news soon got to our owners that she was teaching us to read. This caused quite an excitement in the neighborhood. Patrols were appointed to go and break it up the next Sabbath. They were determined that we should not have a Sabbath school in operation. John W. Fields, also from Kentucky, was under the same impression about that state's law. Born in 1848, he was interviewed in 1937 for the Federal Writers Project. He was 89 years old. Enslaved knew what the laws were. In most of us colored folks was the great desire to be able to read and write. We took advantage of every opportunity to educate ourselves. The greater part of the plantation owners were very harsh if we were caught trying to learn to read or write. It was the law that if a white man was caught trying to educate a Negro slave, he was liable to prosecution, entailing a fine of $50 and a jail sentence. We were never allowed to go to town, and it was not until after I ran away that I knew that they sold anything but slaves, tobacco, and whiskey. Our ignorance was the greatest hold the South had on us. We knew we could run away, but what then? An offender guilty of this crime was subjected to very harsh punishment. The official anti-literacy laws threatened fines and whippings, but blacks lived under all kinds of threats 
for trying to learn to read and write. Louisa Adams of North Carolina told her Federal Works Project interviewer, T. Pat Matthews, You better not be caught with a book in your hand. If you did, you were sold. They didn't allow that. I can read a little, but I can't write. I went to school after slavery and learned to read. We didn't go to school but three or four weeks a year and learned to read. The story of Reverend Peter Fawcett's life was printed in a January 1898 edition of the New York World. Fawcett and his family had been enslaved on Thomas Jefferson's Monticello plantation. Fawcett's father, Joseph, was a blacksmith and Sally Hemings' first cousin. The elder Fawcett was one of the individuals freed per Jefferson's will. He eventually was able to purchase his wife and some of his eight children, but his son Peter was sold to Colonel John R. Jones. In the New York World story, Reverend Fawcett recalled an exchange with Colonel Jones. Mr. Jefferson allowed his grandson to teach any of his slaves who desired to learn, and Louis Randolph first taught me how to read. When I was sold to Colonel Jones, I took my books along with me. One day I was kneeling before the fireplace, spelling the word Baker, when Colonel Jones opened the door, and I shall never forget the scene as long as I live. What have you got there, sir? were his words. I told him. If I ever catch you with a book in your hands, thirty and nine lashes on your bare back. He took the book and threw it into the fire, then called up his sons and told them that if they ever taught me, they would receive the same punishment. But they helped me all they could, as did his daughter Ariadne. W.E. Northcross of Alabama was warned that, if caught with a book, he'd be hung. Gordon Buford and his community of enslaved people never tried to learn, as they'd been told they would be skinned alive. And the threats of violence were not empty, as Bell Carruthers from Marshall County, Mississippi learned. She was struck with muddy boots when caught studying a Webster's Speller. The Webster's blue-backed Speller is referred to in multiple narratives about learning to read. It is one of three volumes that Noah Webster wrote so that American schools could teach from American texts rather than books from England, as had been the tradition. The Spelling Guide, which had a blue cover, was first published in 1783, followed by a Grammar Guide in 1784 and a Reader in 85. In the preface of the 1818 printing of The Speller, Mr. Webster, who was a Yale graduate, wrote that it had become the principal elementary book in the United States. In a great part of the northern states, it is the only book of the kind used. It is much used in the middle and southern states, and its annual sales indicate a large and increasing demand. This was not just empty boasting from Noah Webster. Printing of the blueback speller continued into the 21st century, and over 100 million copies have been sold. But as I was saying, Learning to read was a very risky venture for enslaved Americans. Charlie Grant was beaten with a plaited cowhide for having a book. James Lucas recalled that the man who kept him in bondage, quote, hung the best slave he had for trying to teach the others how to spell, end quote. Lizzie Williams told of, One woman named Nancy during the war what could read and write. When her master, Oliver Perry, found this out, he made her pull off naked, 
whipped her, and slapped hot irons to her all over. Believe me, that didn't want to read and write no more. Helping blacks attain literacy carried dangers for white people, too. They risked being social outcasts, they could face mobs or patrols, and they could be arrested. Ellen Cragen from rural Mississippi remembered an elderly white gentleman who taught her father. The teacher warned the family not to tell the other whites about it. Quote, if you do, they will kill me. End quote. Even teaching free blacks was met with opposition. In 1854, Mrs. Margaret Douglas, a white woman who lived in Norfolk, Virginia, wrote about her experience teaching free black children to read. There is a well-known barber living in the city of Norfolk, a genteel, arid, respectable colored man, much respected in that community. Having some business with him, I one day called his shop, into which he politely invited me. Casting my eyes around, they fell upon two little colored boys with spelling books in their hands, which they appeared to be very attentively engaged in studying. I inquired if they were his children and if they went to school. His reply was that they were his, but that they did not go to school, although he was very anxious to have them learn. I inquired if, they were, if there were no day schools for free colored children. He smiled and said, No, madam and he believed that there was no one who took interest enough in little colored children to keep a day school for them. The barber's name was Mr. Robinson, and Mrs. Douglas offered to have her daughter teach his sons at her home. Mr. Robinson decided to send his daughters instead. After about a month, the Douglases started a school, being very careful, Mrs. Douglas said, to have no slaves among our scholars. Then she describes a police officer coming to the door, having been sent by the mayor, and demanding to see the school. I inquired of Mr. Cherry, the city constable, what he wanted with those children. He replied that he must take them before the mayor. Very well, sir, said I. My daughter and myself will accompany them. To my astonishment, he went to the head of the stairs and gave a loud rap from his club when another officer made his appearance entering from my back door. For the moment, I thought that my house was surrounded with officers, who perhaps fancied that they had found a nest of thieves. They then noted down the names of all the children, as well as those of their parents. When they had finished, I politely informed Mr. Cherry that they were all free children, and all, or nearly all, members of the Christ's Church Sunday School. It makes no difference, madam, he replied. It is a violation of the law to teach any person of color to read or write, slave or free, and an act punishable by imprisonment in the penitentiary. Douglas pleaded ignorance of the law, and the mayor announced his intention to dismiss the charge. But the grand jury indicted her, and she was fined one dollar. However, the judge overturned the penalty and imposed a one-month prison sentence to make an example of her. Northern states were not always welcome to the education of blacks, either. In the fall of 1831, white Quaker school teacher Prudence Crandall opened the Canterbury Female Boarding School in Canterbury, Connecticut. The school taught a rigorous curriculum comparable to those offered by prestigious schools for boys. Girls from wealthy families attended Crandall's Academy, where the tuition was $25 per quarter. The next fall, in 1832, Crandall admitted an African-American girl named Sarah Harris. 
The White families objected and demanded that Crandall expel Harris. When Crandall refused, the White families withdrew from the school. Crandall then gave her school a new mission, educating, quote, young ladies and little misses of color. African-American women from as far away as Philadelphia, Providence, and Boston enrolled. But angry residents continued to harass the academy. When the African-American students were about in town, residents threw eggs, stones, or manure at them. Crandall continued to teach, so opponents took a new approach. The following May, in 1833, the state legislature passed a law stating that No person shall establish in this state any school or literary institution for the instruction or education of colored persons who are not inhabitants of this state, nor instruct in any school or any other literary institution whatsoever in this state. The school remained open after the passage of the law, and Crandall was prosecuted and convicted. The conviction was overturned, but on September 9, 1834, a mob attacked the school with rocks and clubs. They broke windows and smashed furniture. Finally, concerned for the safety of her students and her family, Crandall closed the school permanently. Remarkably, in spite of laws and threats, Americans of African descent learned to read and write, sometimes with the help of white citizens, sometimes without. Susie King Taylor's experience included both. Though enslaved herself, she was permitted to live with her free grandmother, Dolly. Taylor writes, I was born under the slave law in Georgia in 1848 and was brought up by my grandmother in Savannah. There were three of us with her, my younger sister and brother. My brother and I, being the two eldest, we were sent to a friend of my grandmother, Mrs. Woodhouse, a widow, to learn to read and write. She was a free woman and lived on Bay Lane between Habersham and Price Streets, about half a mile from my house. We went every day about nine o'clock with our books wrapped in paper to prevent the police or white persons from seeing them. We went in one at a time through the gate into the yard to the kitchen, which was the schoolroom. She had 25 or 30 children whom she taught, assisted by her daughter, Mary Jane. The neighbors would see us going in sometimes, but they supposed we were there learning trades, as it was the custom to give children a trade of some kind. After school, we left the same way we entered, one by one, when we would go to a square about a block from the school and wait for each other. We would gather laurel leaves and pop them on our hands on our way home. I remained at her school for two years or more when I was sent to a Mrs. Mary Beasley, where I continued until May 1860, when she told my grandmother she had taught me all she knew, and grandmother had better get someone else who could teach me more so I stopped my studies for a while. I had a white playmate about this time, named Katie O'Connor, who lived on the next corner of the street from my house, and who attended a convent. One day she told me, if I would promise not to tell her father, she would give me some lessons. On my promise not to do so, and getting her mother's consent, she gave me lessons about four months every evening. At the end of this time, she was put into the convent permanently, and I have never seen her since. A month after this, James Blewis, our landlord's son, was attending the high school and was very fond of grandmother. 
so she asked him to give me a few lessons, which he did until the middle of 1861, when the Savannah Volunteer Guards, to which he and his brother belonged, were ordered to the front under General Barton. In the First Battle of Manassas, his brother Eugene was killed, and James deserted over to the Union side, and at the close of the war went to Washington, D.C., where he has since resided. Later in life, Susie King Taylor would share the gift of literacy with other African Americans, while also serving them as a nurse during the Civil War. We'll get to her accomplishments in the next episode. When whites did educate blacks or were supportive of it, religion was often the reason. Some believed that converting African Americans was their Christian duty and even a justification for enslaving them. They went as far as building churches and schoolhouses on their own properties and then hiring teachers for the enslaved students, or leading the schools themselves. The enslavers of Squire Dowd from North Carolina and of Molly Mitchell and Easter Jones from Georgia all taught in Sunday schools on their respective plantations. The Bray schools were named after Anglican clergyman Thomas Bray, and their purpose was, quote, the instruction of Negro children in the principles of the Christian religion. There were Bray schools in Pennsylvania, New York, Rhode Island, and Virginia. Virginia had one Bray school in Fredericksburg and one in Williamsburg. Over the course of 14 years, the Williamsburg School educated as many as 400 African Americans, most of them enslaved but some free. But low enrollment and hostility from local slaveholders forced the school to close in 1774. By 1776, all U.S. Bray schools had closed. Andrew Goodman told his Federal Works Project interviewer that every Sunday, a nearby enslaved man, quote, a man of good learning, end quote, preached to them in their plantation church. Then Master Bob taught them reading and writing. Bob had said, quote, we ought to get all the learning we could, end quote. But Bob seems to have been an exception for including writing with religious instruction. Frequently, whites who taught enslaved individuals for religious reasons taught reading only. Henry Bruce said that the man who enslaved him was, quote, glad his Negroes could read, especially the Bible, but he was opposed to their being taught writing, end quote. Bruce didn't learn to write until after the end of slavery. To some, however, not even the possibility of saving souls, or at least instilling obedience, was worth the risk of a literate enslaved population. In 1851, prize-winning essayist Nathan Bass warned of spirit of bigotry and fanaticism which are abroad in this country, seeking to disseminate a spirit of insubordination in the bosom of the slave by the circulation of incendiary publications, inducing him to throw off the authority of those to whom his services are due. Bass advised enslavers that it was safer for them to teach morality and religion themselves. One way to do this is catechism, a means of instruction that involves memorizing questions and answers. It can be taught orally without teaching reading or writing. Some examples of the questions and answers include, Who made the world? God. What is God's book called? The Bible. How many commandments are there? There are ten commandments. What is the first commandment? And so on. 
Abolitionist and orator Frederick Douglass attributed his first reading lessons to his teacher's compassion. He writes, Very soon after, I went to live with Mr. and Mrs. Ald. She very kindly commenced to teach me the ABC. After I had learned this, she assisted me in learning to spell words of three or four letters. When Mr. Ald learned about the teaching, he put a stop to it, but young Frederick continued his education. The plan which I adopted, and the one by which I was most successful, was that of making friends of all the little white boys whom I met in the street. As many of these as I could, I converted into teachers. With their kindly aid, obtained at different times and in different places, I finally succeeded in learning to read. When I was sent up errands, I always took my book with me, and by going one part of my errand quickly, I found time to get a lesson before my return. I used also to carry bread with me, enough of which was always in the house, and to which I was always welcome, for I was much better off in this regard than many of the poor white children in our neighborhood. This bread I used to bestow upon the hungry little urchins, who, in return, would give me that more valuable bread of knowledge. I am strongly tempted to give the names of two or three of those little boys as a testimonial of the gratitude and affection I bear them. But prudence forbids, not that it would injure me, but it might embarrass them, for it is almost an unpardonable offense to teach slaves to read in this Christian country. It is enough to say of the dear little fellows that they lived on Philpot Street, very near Durgan and Bailey's shipyard. James Curry also had the experience of getting his start from a white family, then, after that was forbidden, continuing on his own. His narrative was published in the January 10, 1840 edition of The Liberator, an abolitionist newspaper. My master's oldest son was six months older than I. He went to a day school, and as I had a great desire to learn to read, I prevailed upon him to teach me. My mother procured me a spelling book. Before Nat Turner's insurrection, a slave in our neighborhood might buy a spelling or hymn book, but now he cannot. I got so I could read a little. When my master found it out, he forbade his son to teach me any more. As I had got the start, however, I kept on reading and studying, and from that time till I came away, I always had a book somewhere about me, and if I got an opportunity, I would be reading in it. Indeed, I have a book now, which I brought all the way from North Carolina. I borrowed a hymn book and learned the hymns by heart. My uncle had a Bible, which he lent me, and I studied the scriptures. When my master's family were all gone away on the Sabbath, I used to go into the house and get down the great Bible, and lie down in the piazza and read, taking care, however, to put it back before they returned. The insurrection to which Curry refers took place in 1831 and was led by Nat Turner, an enslaved preacher from Virginia. In February of that year, Turner had had a vision of a holy war and believed he'd received a message from God that he should lead a slave rebellion. The solar eclipse on August 13 was Turner's sign that the time had come. He preached this message the following day. Then, on August 21st, Turner and six other men killed all of the white people at the home of John Travis, the man to whom Turner had been hired out. They continued through the Southampton County, Virginia neighborhood, 
growing in number to about 60 men and boys, and killing about 60 white people. The militia, along with state and federal troops, eventually defeated the rebellion as Turner and other participants went into hiding. Turner surrendered on October 30th to a farmer who found him hiding in a cave. He was sentenced to death, hanged on November 11th, and beheaded. A white lawyer named Thomas Gray interviewed Turner while he was in jail awaiting trial, and eventually published The Confessions of Nat Turner. Some historians have asserted that Gray embellished or fabricated parts of the narrative. The controversial memoir includes an account of learning to read. The manner in which I learned to read and write not only had great influence on my own mind, as, that, as I acquired it with the most perfect ease, so much so that I have no recollection whatever of learning the alphabet, but to the astonishment of the family, one day when a book was shown me to keep me from crying, I began spelling the names of different objects. This was a source of wonder to all in the neighborhood, especially the blacks, and this learning was constantly improved at all opportunities. Though we've already heard about anti-literacy laws that were in place before the rebellion, multiple sources, including Mr. Curry, credit this event with spurring more laws to control African Americans' activities. The 1833 Alabama Slave Code declared, Section 10, be it further enacted that any person or persons who shall endeavor or attempt teach any person of color or slave to spell, read, or write, shall, upon conviction thereof by indictment, be fined in a sum not less than $250, nor more than $500. Section 17. And be it further enacted, that hereafter it shall not be lawful for more than five male slaves, either with or without passes, to assemble together at any place off the proper plantation to which they belong, and if any do so assemble themselves together, the same shall be deemed and considered as an unlawful assembly. Section 18. And be it further enacted that it shall be the duty of all patrols and officers, civil and military, forthwith, to cause said slaves so assembled to disperse, and each of said slaves so assembled shall be liable to receive any number of lashes not exceeding ten. The law also prohibited blacks from preaching except in the presence of, quote, five respectable slaveholders. The penalty was 39 lashes, but repeat offenders could receive 50. Incidentally, this law also required enslavers to, quote, feed and clothe their slaves with a sufficiency of food and clothing for their comfort, end quote. The fine for failing to do so was up to $500. But throughout slavery, there were whites who helped blacks to read, seemingly motivated in some cases by an appreciation for the value of education, even for the people they held in bondage. The man who enslaved Robert Cheatham's Kentucky family said to them, You colored boys and girls must learn to read and write, no matter what powers object. Your parents and grandparents were taught to read and write when they belonged to my forefathers, and you young Negroes have to learn as much. The man who enslaved Robert Laird said he didn't want his slaves, quote, not to know nothing. In the Boston home of John and Susanna Wheatley, young Phyllis read not only the Bible, but also the works of Virgil and Homer, of John Milton, and Alexander Pope. 
She studied astronomy, history, and geography. She had been kidnapped from West Africa at about the age of seven. While her fellow Africans would have been sold in the West Indies or Southern colonies, Phyllis was taken to Boston with other so-called refugee slaves who were considered too weak for labor in those first ports of call. John Wheatley paid only a, quote, trifle for her as she was in poor health and the ship captain wanted to obtain at least a small profit for the girl before she died, as she was expected to. The Wheatleys named the frail little girl after the ship that carried her across the Atlantic. Though the Wheatleys did not excuse Phyllis from all of her domestic duties, she had enough time to write poetry. And I'll talk more about that in the next episode. Over a century later, Americans told interviewers how and why the white people who enslaved them had taught them to read. Robert McKinley was given as a gift to white child Jane Alice. She was fond of little Bob, so she taught him to read. Jane Wyatt said, quote, When I was a slave, I worked in the house with my mistress, and I was able to learn lots from her. Although it was against the law to teach a slave, my mistress taught me my alphabets. End quote. Alice Green's mother would keep a school book in her bosom at all times. When the white children got home from school every day, she asked them to tell her everything they had learned. She learned enough from them to become a teacher after emancipation. At the age of 84, Charity Jones recalled her life in Mississippi. Old Missus learned me how to card bats and spin and how to weave cloth, and I could weave now if I had the loom. She learned me how to sew and sweep, and I helped tote the grub from the kitchen to the big house. And sometimes I would slip a bite to eat when I was toting it back from the house. They always had such good stuff to eat. My missus learned me how to read and write. She learned me everything I know. At times, whites found that it served their own interests to have literate slaves. Henry Jewett Gray was a blind Virginia man who wanted to teach other blind people. To achieve this, he required, quote, a servant capable of reading and writing, which object cannot be permanently secured otherwise than by the education of a young slave named Randolph, end quote. To accommodate Gray's request, the Virginia legislature passed a law in 1842, but they also required that Gray's father, Robert, quote, indemnify the public against any possible injury which might be apprehended from the misconduct of said slave, end quote. Before escaping from a North Carolina plantation in 1856, John Sella Martin read the news aloud to his blind enslaver. While John Cock was in Fluvanna County, Virginia, enslaved woman Lucy Skipwith mailed him written updates about his Hopewell, Alabama plantation. Skipwith wrote him letters about the plantation activities and progress on the school he was having built. Washington Curry was born in Haywood County, Tennessee, and recalled, I was born in 1862, September 1st. I got that off the Bible. My father, he belonged to a doctor, and the doctor, he was a kind of a weight man to him, and the doctor learned him to read and write. Right after the war, he was a teacher. He was ready to be a teacher before most other people because he learned to read and write in slavery. Curry recalled that there were so many folks that came to see the doctor and wanted to leave numbers and addresses 
that he had to have someone to tend to that, and he taught my father to read and write so he could do it. And Simpson Campbell had been taught to read and write, quote, for booking cotton in the field and such like, end quote. Among the many stories about learning to read, quite a few involved the unwitting assistance of white people. To the child she was charged with caring for, Mama Emmeline would say, quote, Come here, Emily. Mama will keep your place for you. End quote. Emmelina followed along while little Emily read. Eventually, Emmelina was a fluent enough reader to teach her own children. Frederick Douglass wrote the following about his unwitting teachers. The idea as to how I might learn to write was suggested to me by being in Durgan and Bailey's shipyard, and frequently seeing the ship's carpenters, after hewing, and getting a piece of timber ready to use, write on the timber the name of that part of the ship for which it was intended. When a piece of timber was intended for the larboard side, it would be marked thus, L. When a piece was for the starboard side, it would be marked thus, S. A piece for the larboard side forward would be marked thus, LF. When a piece was for starboard side forward, it would be marked thus, SF. For larboard aft, it would be marked thus, LA. For starboard aft, it would be marked thus, SA. I soon learned the names of these letters and for what they were intended when placed upon a piece of timber in the shipyard. I immediately commenced copying them, and in a short time was able to make the four letters named. After that, when I met with any boy who I knew could write, I would tell him I could write as well as he. The next word would be, I don't believe you, let me see you try it. I would then make the letters, which I had been so fortunate to learn, and ask him to beat that. In this way, I got a good many lessons in writing, which it is quite possible I should never have gotten in any other way. During this time, my copy book was the board fence, brick wall, and pavement. My pen and ink was a lump of chalk. With these, I learned mainly how to write. Staying ready for a lesson at any time was another recurring theme. Elijah P. Mars, whom I quoted in the intro, remembered that, I availed myself of every opportunity. Daily I carried my book in my pocket, and every chance that offered would be learning my ABCs. Soon I learned to read. After this, the white people would send me daily to the post office at Simpsonville, Kentucky, a distance of two miles, when I would read the address of the letters. I also would read the newspapers the best I could. An enslaved man from North Carolina, who was known as Uncle Charles, also carried his primer everywhere in his hat. He challenged white boys to tell him what a letter was, eventually learning the whole alphabet. When enslaved people learned to read, they taught others. Parents taught their children, grandparents taught their grandchildren, and brothers taught their sisters. Every two weeks, Anderson Whitted's father was permitted the use of a horse for the 14-mile trip to visit him. Father spent those precious visits teaching son to read. Henrietta Murray's grandmother taught Sunday school on their Choctaw County, Mississippi plantation. Ms. Murray said the older woman, quote, taught us all we knowed, end quote. Maria Parham of Coahoma County, Mississippi, also learned to read from her grandmother, known as Old Lady Patsy. 
Henry Bruce recalled that after enslaved children learned from their white playmates, the older one would teach the younger, and while mother had no education at all, she used to make the younger study the lessons given by the older sister or brother, and in that way we all learned to read and some to write. George Washington Albright shared, quote, The white children on my plantation often did their lessons in the kitchen in my mother's presence and she picked up what information she could and taught me. I got a primer, and I learned to read it." End quote. Enslaved people also shared the gift of literacy outside of their families. Near the Mississippi plantation where Mandy Jones lived, the enslaved dug pits in the woods, then covered them with vines and bushes. The scholars, quote, would slip out of the quarters at night and go to these pits, and some that had some learning would have a school. End quote. And nighttime was often the only safe time to learn. Jenny Proctor of Texas kept her Webster's blueback speller hidden until dark, then lit a little pine torch by which to read it. Returning again to Mr. Mars, quote, There was an old colored man on the place by the name of Ham Graves, who opened a night school beginning at 10 o'clock at night. I attended his school one year and learned how to write my name and read writing. End quote. W.E. Northcross persisted in learning to read, in spite of being threatened with hanging, as I mentioned a few moments ago. He gathered old boards as kindling to make a fire by which to read. He recalled, I would shut the doors, put one end of a board into the fire, and proceed to study. But whenever I heard the dogs barking, I would throw my book under the bed and peep to listen to see what was up. If no one was near, I would crawl under the bed, get my book, come out, lie flat on my stomach, and proceed to study until the dogs would again disturb me. Reverend G. W. Offley's Journey to Literacy, published in 1859, shares common elements with many of the narratives we've heard so far. Learning any and everywhere, learning at night, learning with the aid of white people, and trading learning for food. My friends who may read this little work will make due allowance when they see that I never possessed the advantage of one day's schooling in my life, and only commenced to learn my letters when nineteen years and eight months old. At one time, when going to my work, I found a piece of a chapter of an old Bible, Genesis 25, concerning Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. At this time, there was an old colored man working for my father. He, taking the piece of Bible, and read it to me. I do not remember ever hearing that much of the Bible read before. I told him I would like to learn to read. He told me to get a book and he would learn me, while he stayed with us. I bought a little primer, and Sunday morning he commenced learning me my letters. By Monday morning I could say them all. He would give me lessons nights and Sabbath mornings. He said when he used to take his master's children to school, he would carry his book in his hat and get the children to give him a lesson in the interval of the school. He grew up to be a young man, experienced religion, and joined the M.E. Church, and was authorized to preach among his colored brethren, free and slave, and was set free some time before he worked for my father. After he left our house, I was without a teacher, and there was an old man, about seventy-five or eighty years old, a slaveholder, owned a small farm, 
and one slave woman married to a slave belonging to another slaveholder. This woman was the mother of two small children. Her old master had five daughters, one son eighteen years of age, a family of ten in number, to be supported from this little farm. No one to work except this son and the slave woman, only as I could go and help them occasionally. By this, the young man and I became very intimate, and I learned him the art of wrestling, boxing, and fighting, and he learned me to read. After that, I went to work on a railroad. Then I taught boxing school and learned to write. After that, I went to St. George, Delaware, to work at a hotel. One day, a white boy came to me and said that he was hungry. His father gambled away his money, and if I could give him and his little sister something to eat occasionally, he would come three nights in the week and set copies for me to write and learn to cipher. The landlady was very glad of the opportunity and gave me the privilege of giving them as much as I pleased, and I used to take them in the kitchen and give them what they could eat and fill their little basket to take home. He would stay with me sometime until 2 or 3 o'clock p.m., and learn me to cipher to the single rule of three. Reverend Offley couldn't have known that in six more years, many of his fellow enslaved would have the opportunity to learn, not just in secret or by firelight, but in schools established by the federal government, more precisely the Freedmen's Bureau. And not too long after that, Howard University, chartered by Congress, and several other institutions of higher learning would be founded for black people. You can hear more about that in Episode 2 of the Great Migration series. In the next episode of this series, I'll talk about why, despite the dangers, African Americans fought so bravely and ingeniously for education. I'll also talk about some of the remarkable things they were able to do for themselves and for others, having learned to read and write. Many of the narratives quoted today are part of UNC's North American Slave Narratives Collection. Interviews from the Federal Writers Project are available on gutenberg.org. Links to these and other resources are in the show notes at americanepistles.com. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters. If you're enjoying this series, please leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening.